Chapter Thirteen of the Professor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Professor by Charlotte Bronte. Chapter Thirteen. Next morning I rose with the dawn, and having dressed myself and stood half an hour my elbow leaning on the chest of drawers, considering what means I should adopt to restore my spirits, fagged with sleeplessness, to their ordinary tone, for I had no intention of getting up a scene with M. Pilet, reproaching him with perfidy, sending him a challenge, or performing other gambadoes of the sort, I hit at last on the expedient of walking out in the cool of the morning to a neighbouring establishment of baths, and treating myself to a brazing plunge. The remedy produced a desired effect. I came back at seven o'clock, steadied and invigorated, and was able to greet M. Pilet when he entered to breakfast with an unchanged and tranquil countenance. Even a cordial offering of the hand and the flattering appellation of Muffis, pronounced in that caressing tone with which Monsieur had, of late days especially, been accustomed to address me, did not elicit any external sign of the feeling which, though subdued, still glowed at my heart. Not that I nursed vengeance, no, but the sense of insult and treachery lived in me like a kindling, though as yet smothered coal. God knows I am not by nature vindictive. I would not hurt a man because I can no longer trust or like him, but neither my reason nor feelings are of the vacillating order. They are not of that sand-like sort where impressions, if soon made, are as soon effaced. Once convinced that my friend's disposition is incompatible with my own, once assured that he is indelibly stained with certain defects obnoxious to my principles, and I dissolved the connection. I did so with Edward. As to Pilot, the discovery was yet new. Should I act thus with him? It was a question I placed before my mind, as I stirred my cup of coffee with a half-pistolet. We never had spoons. Pilot, meantime being seated opposite, his pallid face looking as knowing and more haggard than usual, his blue eye turned, now sternly on his boys and ushers, and now graciously on me. Circumstances must guide me, said I, and, meeting Pilate's false glance and insinuating smile, I thanked heaven that I had last night opened my window and read by the light of a full moon the true meaning of that guileful countenance. I felt half his master, because the reality of his nature was now known to me. Smile and flatter as he would, I saw his soul lurk behind his smile, and heard in every one of his smooth phrases a voice interpreting their treacherous import. But Zoraide Reuter, of course the defection had cut me to the quick. That stint must have gone too deep for any consolations of philosophy to be available in curing its smart. Not at all. The night fever over, I looked about for balm to that wound also, and found some nearer home than at Gilead. Reason was my physician. She began by proving that the prize I had missed was of little value. She admitted that, physically, Zoraide might have suited me, but affirmed that our souls were not in harmony, and that discord must have resulted from the union of her mind with mine. She then insisted on the suppression of all repining, and commanded me rather to rejoice that I had escaped a snare. Her medicament did me good. I felt its strengthening effect when I met the directress the next day. Its stringent operation on the nerves suffered no trembling, no faltering. It enabled me to face her with firmness, to pass her with ease. She had held out her hand to me, that I did not choose to see. She had greeted me with a charming smile. It fell on my heart like light on stone. 
I passed on to the estrade. She followed me. Her eye, fastened on my face, demanded of every feature the meaning of my changed and careless manner. I will give her an answer, thought I, and, meeting her gaze full, arresting, fixing her glance, I shot into her eyes, from my own, a look where there was no respect, no love, no tenderness, no gallantry, where the strictest analysis could detect nothing but scorn, hardihood, irony. I made her bear it, and feel it. Her steady countenance did not change, but her colour rose, and she approached me as if fascinated. She stepped on to the estrade, and stood close by my side. She had nothing to say. I would not relieve her embarrassment, and negligently turned over the leaves of a book. "'I hope you feel quite recovered today,' at last she said, in a low tone. "'And I, mademoiselle, hope that you took no colds last night in consequence of your late walk in the garden.' Quick enough of comprehension, she understood me directly. Her face became a little blanched, a very little, but no muzzle in her rather marked features moved, and, calm and self-possessed, she retired from the estrade, taking her seat quietly at a little distance, and occupying herself with netting a purse. I proceeded to give my lesson. It was a composition. That is, I dictated certain gentle questions, of which the pupils were to compose the answers from memory, access to books being forbidden, while Mademoiselle Eulalie, Hortense, Caroline, etc., were pondering over the string of rather abstruse grammatical interrogatories I had propounded, I was at liberty to employ the vacant half-hour in further observing the directress herself. The green silk purse was progressing fast in our hands. Her eyes were bent upon it. Her attitude, as she sat netting within two yards of me, was still yet guarded. In her whole person were expressed at once, and with equal clearness, vigilance and repose. A rare union. Looking at her, I was forced, as I had often been before, to offer her good sense, her wondrous self-control, the tribute of involuntary admiration. She had felt that I had withdrawn from her my esteem, she had seen contempt and coldness in my eye, and to her, who coveted the approbation of all around her, who thirsted after universal good opinion, such discovery must have been an acute wound. I had witnessed its effect in the momentary pallor of her cheek-cheek unused to vary. Yet how quickly, by dint of self-control, had she recovered her composure! With what quiet dignity she now sat, almost at my side, sustained by her sound and vigorous sense! No trembling in her somewhat lengthened, though shrewd upper lip, no coward shame on her austere forehead. There is metal there, I said, as I gazed, would that there were fire also, living order to make the steel glow, then I could love her. Presently I discovered that she knew I was watching her, for she stirred not, she lifted not her crafty eyelid. She had glanced down from her netting to her small foot, peeping from the soft folds of her purple merino gown. Thence her eye reverted to her hand, ivory white, with a bright garnet ring on the forefinger, and a light frill of lace round the wrist. With a scarcely perceptible movement, she turned her head, causing her nut-brown curls to wave gracefully. In these slight signs I read that the wish of her heart, the design of her brain, was to lure back the game she had scared. A little incident gave her the opportunity of addressing me again. While all was silence in the class, silence, but for the rustling of copy-books and the travelling of pens over their pages, a leaf of the large folding-door, opening from the hall, unclosed, 
admitting a pupil who, after making a hasty obeisance, ensconced herself with some appearance of trepidation, probably occasioned by her entering so late, in a vacant seat at the desk nearest the door. Being seated, she proceeded, still with an air of hurry and embarrassment, to open her kaba, to take out her books, and, while I was waiting for her to look up, in order to make out her identity, for, short-sighted as I was, I had not recognized her at her entrance, Mademoiselle Reuter, leaving her chair, approached the estrade. Monsieur Creamsford, said she, in a whisper, for, when the schoolrooms were silent, the directress always moved with velvet tread, and spoke in the most subdued key, enforcing order and stillness, fully as much by example as precept. Monsieur Creamsford, that young person, who has just entered, wishes to have the advantage of taking lessons with you in English. She is not a pupil of the house. She is, indeed, in one sense, a teacher, for she gives instruction in lace-mending, and in little varieties of ornamental needlework. She very properly proposes to qualify herself for a higher department of education, and has asked permission to attend your lessons, in order to perfect her knowledge of English, in which language she has, I believe, already made some progress. Of course it is my wish to aid her in an effort so praiseworthy. You will permit her then to benefit by her instruction, n'est-ce pas, monsieur? And Mademoiselle Reuter's eyes were raised to mine with a look at once naive, benign, and beseeching. I replied, of course, very laconically, almost abruptly. Another word, she said with softness, Mademoiselle Henry has not received a regular education. Perhaps her natural talents are not of the highest order, but I can assure you of the excellence of her intentions, and even of the amiability of her disposition. Monsieur will then, I am sure, have the goodness to be considerate with her at first, and not expose her backwardness, her inevitable deficiencies before the young ladies, who, in a sense, are her pupils. Will Monsieur Creamsport favour me by attending to this hint? I nodded. She continued with subdued earnestness. Pardon me, Monsieur, if I venture to add that what I have just said is of importance to the poor girl. She already experiences great difficulty in impressing these giddy young things with a due degree of deference for her authority, and should the difficulty be increased by new discoveries of her incapacity, she might find her position in my establishment too painful to be retained, a circumstance I should much regret for her sake, as she can ill afford to lose the profits of her occupation here. Mademoiselle Reuter possessed marvellous tact, but tact the most exclusive, unsupported by sincerity, will sometimes fail of its effect. Thus, on this occasion, the longer she preached about the necessity of being indulgent to the governess pupil, the more impatient I felt as I listened. I discerned so clearly that while her professed motive was a wish to aid the dull, though well-meaning Mademoiselle Henry, her real one was no other than a design to impress me with an idea of her own exalted goodness and tender considerateness. So having again hastily nodded assent to her remarks, I obviated their renewal by suddenly demanding the compositions, in a sharp accent, and stepping from the estrade, I proceeded to collect them. As I passed the governess pupil, I said to her, You have come in too late to receive a lesson today. Try to be more punctual next time. I was behind her, and could not read in her face the effect of my not very civil speech. Probably I should not have troubled myself to do so, had I been full in front, but I observed that she immediately began to slip her books into her kaba again and, presently, after I had returned to the estrade, while I was arranging the mass of compositions, I heard the folding-door again open and close, and, on looking up, 
I perceived her place vacant. I thought to myself, she will consider her first attempt at taking a lesson in English something of a failure, and I wondered whether she had departed in the sulks, or whether stupidity had induced her to take my words too literally, or finally, whether my irritable tone had wounded her feelings. The last notion I dismissed almost as soon as I had conceived it, for, not having seen any appearance of sensitiveness in any human face since my arrival in Belgium, I had begun to regard it almost as a fabulous quality. Whether her physiognomy announced it I could not tell, for her speedy exit had allowed me no time to ascertain the circumstance. I had, indeed, on two or three previous occasions, caught a passing view of her, as I believe has been mentioned before, but I had never stopped to scrutinize either her face or person, and had but the most vague idea of her general appearance. Just as I had finished rolling up the compositions, the four o'clock bell rang. With my accustomed alertness in obeying that signal, I grasped my hat and evacuated the premises. End of chapter 13